0: Howdy gang, Backcountry and Barbells, Joe Shimonic here. Uh, My my normal co-host is uh, out doing uh, wilderness exploits or scouting for Turkey Day, but um, I have a a great stand-in today. Um, Author uh, Phil White, who's been mentioned uh, a few times uh, for a resource that that I use in my own life and even in the classroom, unplugged, but uh, getting to talking, he's, he's written a bunch of books on history, he's written a bunch of books on training, um, he's done some screenwriting, uh, just to mention some of the titles he's been involved with from a training, sp- uh, training perspective. It's a uh, Waterman 2.0, unplugged, uh, game changer, and, um, he's written for various fitness blogs. So, uh, check him out, Phil, real quick, before we get into this topic that, I mean, we've already spent eight minutes, uh, jiving on, on some real cool historical figures. I kind of went through a, a real overview. That's how you're known if someone Googles you, right? But, uh. For folks who want to go beyond Google, what's missing in your intro that you'd like people to know about?
1: So I guess I um, before I got into writing about human performance, and I was a two two sport college athlete at a mighty Mid America Nazarene University in the heart of a America Conference okay. out in Kansas City. So shout out shout out to all the NAIA school attendees on the line with you today, because you know <laughs> that's a legit thing. Division um,
0: three football player here, Phil. You, hey, brother. there
1: we go, man. Div 2, <laughs> Div 3, NAIA. These are my people. Junior College. Right. Um, so I played, I played basketball and uh, to my brother who played at the Southampton, so a Premier League uh, team academy for a couple of years. So his great amusement. They gave me money for uh, footy, for soccer. Um, I don't know why, maybe because I have an accent. But anyway, so, um, yeah, my first couple of books were... Um, were in history. So I wrote one called Our Supreme Task, which is the unlikely tale of how Winston Churchill ended up a tiny little uh, town of Fulton, Missouri in 1946 and his Iron Curtain speech, which he said is the most important speech of his career. And as you know, Joe, he gave a few. Um, So yeah, you might wanna check that out. And really I wrote it from the perspective of um, the president of Westminster College, which is still a great liberal arts school. Again, a small school down there in Fulton, Missouri. Lovely people. Um, How on earth did he pull it off, Joe? Um, Winston Churchill coming off the back of essentially holding the line until the U.S. came in to bail us out, as you guys Mm. always do. Thank you. Um, Yeah, we'll take it. (laughs) But he, he kept Western democracy alive virtually by himself until the U.S., entered the war despite the fact that we were routed on mainland Europe hmm. we were thrown back into the sea um and obviously the Dunkirk evacuation um watch the movie Dunkirk if you haven't seen it it's brilliant read a book on it it's amazing but how was he able to do to do this and then beyond that how is this this plucky college president Bullet McClure able to get the most famous man in the world to come to a college that most of your readers ha- probably haven't heard of but until I wrote the book I hadn't heard of. And, um, you know, how is his wife involved? How, what part did Harry Truman play in this tale? So that book took me three years. Um, I did in person archival research down there at, at the college in Missouri, where the national Churchill museum is, if you have a rolling through Missouri, check it out. The national Churchill museum in Fulton. Brilliant. It's
2: Churchill. in the basement.
1: It's in the basement of an old church that was bombed out in London in the, in the blitz world war two. And they literally a wealthy American businessman brought it back and rebuilt it stone by stone. And it's the same, um, guy, sir Christopher Wren that designed and built St. Paul's cathedral in London, which everyone knows basically the church with the bloody big dome. So yeah, that's its own history. So three years on that in dusty archives and then wrote a book called whistle stop. Um, about how on earth Harry Truman overcame a double split in his party in the 1948 election. Um, Basically, everyone in the Democratic Party hated him compared to his predecessor, FDR, thought he was crap, thought he had only ascended to the presidency because he was VP when the president died. The Republicans sure hated him. And the Republicans had such a dream ticket, supposedly, That polling, if you can believe this, for a November election, Joe, ceased in mid-September because it was so over. Truman was so behind that they thought it would be the biggest electoral defeat in history. Somehow he managed to come back. So this is the story of the seven young men who turned the tide there and helped him. So yeah, it's the history books, man, our supreme task on Churchill. Um, and we'll stop on treatment. So yeah, thanks for asking, brother.
0: Well, no, the the history stuff's super interesting, and even now, like you know, as I kind of break you know quarantine rules and set up little hikes with friends and just talking history, like it's funny how you can get onto some of these topics. And even you asked the question, like how did he do it in reference to Churchill, and it actually is a nice bridge to what I wanted to ask you because even in public lands, like a big figure is Teddy Roosevelt, and to me, and and to make the bridge to to Roosevelt or Roosevelt and Churchill is like. These guys seem to me, and to go to your question, how did they do it? They seem to me to just have like this supreme confidence. And, and, and as I look at both characters, they both like, they were, they both seem motivated by this idea that I want to be known for more than my father's exploits to some degree. And, and they, they overpowered it. So to me, how did either of them do it? Whether it's Teddy Roosevelt starting this public lands movement or, or Churchill saving democracy, it's like, they had the supreme confidence that maybe to me seemed rooted in, I want to be more of a man than my father was like to put it basic to go back to that. So, um, am I, am I far off on that? I mean, having done a little bit more research about these gentlemen and finding about them, is there anything in their personal history before they were these larger than life characters that maybe led to that supreme confidence?
1: Yeah, I think, and this could be construed as arrogance, because it is an arrogant quote, but um, Churchill said, we're all worms, I just happen to be- believe I'm a glow worm. There you go. And so he had a sense of destiny, that he was destined to be Prime Minister of England. Um, but his father... He had a really tricky relationship. His father was really savage to him. If you read the letters that his father wrote to him when he was at boarding school and then when he was basically about to flunk out of the military academy at Sandhurst, which is the officer training academy, his dad was real mean to him. Um, But his dad had held every major position in the British government, all the way up to Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the guy that controls the money, right? It's like Secretary of the Treasury, but he had never been Prime Minister. And I think that Churchill, and he had fallen on his own sword because of principle, and then it contributed to a health spiral that led to him dying young. And even though they had this tricky relationship, Churchill was asked the question that podcast hosts ask a lot, if you were able to have dinner with one historical figure, who would it be? And he said, my father, and he didn't even hesitate, even though if you had read those letters, you'd be like, dang, dad, why are you so harsh on this young kid, (laughs) you know? Um, So I think he wanted to prove something to his dad. He also wanted, he was a big, he wrote a book about, he was born in Blenheim Palace, which think basically Downton Abbey, but bigger, and the Duke of Marlborough was his ancestor who hundreds of years before had won a really famous battle in the UK that basically sent a foreign invader scurrying away with their tail between their legs and turned the tide in that you know, decades-old conflict between Britain and another country. And Churchill wrote, a lot of people don't understand that Churchill made his living not as a politician but as a writer. He wrote for the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, all these newspapers and magazines. And if I could, if I had the money, Joe, to buy one collected edition of somebody's works, it would be Churchill's newspaper and magazine work. But it's leather-bound, it's super rare, and it's five grand, and I would be divorced if I bought that. <laughs> so I ain't buying that, bro. But yeah, he, and his output was amazing. And he dictated everything to secretaries, which we can get to later. But um, he, he was a writer by trade, so he understood very well that his lineage was descended from this John of Marlborough the Duke of Marlborough, all the way down through his birth, his fa- all the stuff of his father. And he wanted to basically just continue the, fa- the family name. So it wasn't just trying to prove his dad wrong, even though his dad was dead. Um, it wasn't just that his father was cast out for ideological differences, much like Churchill was in the run up to World War Two. Churchill was the only one telling the truth about Hitler and he knew what Hitler was going to do to try to take over all of Europe and eventually the world and no one listened and we didn't ramp up our plane production, our tank production, our training programs for soldiers, our production of rifles, handguns and we were caught napping. Hitler and the only person who wasn't surprised was Churchill and the young guys at the foreign office who were going over to Germany snooping around Mm. and getting the real numbers and there is a collection of speeches Churchill gave um, which I have I could grab it right on the shelf it's called While England Slept and JFK was so impressed with this this collection of speeches that he wrote his dissertation and he riffed on the title and he called it Why England Slept. Wow. And again, so you can see that Churchill, um, the influence he had on folks like JFK um, and, and and other leaders, both Bushes, Bill Clinton has spoken extensively of how Churchill influences leadership. But to your point, going back to the, his dad thing, yes, the thing is a real thing. And he knew he told everyone who would listen, I will die on the anniversary of my father's death. And guess what? He did. He willed himself to do that at the end of his life. So, yeah, he was trying to prove something to the memory of his father. He wanted to kind of um, unsully the the, fact, the Churchill name within the political classes in England. But he was also very conscious of this noble lineage for John, the Duke of Marlborough from the 1500s, so much so that he wrote over a million words about his ancestor.
0: Well, it's it's super powerful to me, and, and honestly, it's a historical route and a fun route to get us into really what I think is important about even the the performance books that you've written and the takeaways for all the folks in this who who are listening to this. It's just you can call it confidence, you can call it like uh, you know living up to your destiny or or. You know, lots of things you can title this, but to me, it, it sounds like resiliency. So, I guess the question there too is, in the context of these historical characters, and maybe y- you've managed to bridge some cool relationships with really powerful coaches like Kelly Starrett and, and uh, exercise physio- physiologist like Andy Galpin, who I appreciate. But it's this idea of resiliency, right? And like, what was it about Churchill? I mean, because it's my opinion, even with my own kids, we all have a dose that we can take. And if you get the right dose, you can you can be Churchill, even in your own little space, and 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 really meet tasks and perform and do awesome things. Or, if the if the stress is not dosed appropriately, you can kind of be that worm character that that Churchill talked about instead of the glowworm. So, I mean, how 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 do you think Churchill? Is there any clues besides him just saying, or anybody besides him just saying? um I'm going to be great, and I'm going to live up to this, or I'm going to be the glowworm. I mean, where, where does that character start? That resiliency start? Where you can? Because I mean, some parents fold to a dad who's going to be that critical of them.
1: And let's be clear: Churchill memorized hundreds of lines of poetry in school, so he was really good at memorization. Surprisingly, yeah. uh, not not surprisingly at all, he was really good at public speaking. And other than that, he was a te- and he loved to read. So in today's uh, English li- joke of an English literature class, um, throughout the school system into the most elite colleges, he would have crushed that. He was crap at everything else.
0: He was consuming though, I mean literature. He was real
1: bad at number, yeah. But he was and he was consuming literature and history. Um, he was obsessed with military history, which ended up serving him well. But he was a bad student. He did not graduate from college with a degree. He only got his officer um he only passed out of sandhurst as an officer on his third three strikes and you're out policy he had to retake that thing twice and the Mm -hmm. last one he was out on his ear and he barely scraped through we write people off at a very early age if they are not able to take tests well yeah and one of my best friends, my best probably my best friend in Evergreen, Matt Cormier, is the as he calls it, the lucky, the lucky principal of Wilmot Elementary here. And the fact that no one listening has heard of that school or that person is irrelevant. The greatest leader I've ever seen in person in any sphere, military, human performance, anything. Um, because his highest station in life is to be the principal of Wilmot Elementary and affect the lives of kids. Has some amazing teachers serving him. But we've probably all dealt with teachers who have um, not been so great and maybe even entire schools that have written us or our kids off because we don't know how to take tests or we're not proficient above the board, across the board, sorry. So I think the thing is with Churchill, if you had looked at his grades and you had looked at his lack of control over his personal finances, Mm. even the newspapers that paid him the most, even when he got... The biggest book advance, he ended up winning the Nobel Prize for literature. Most people wouldn't know that for his World War Two memoirs. And yes, they're biased. And yes, he bigs himself up and rags on his critics. And it's it, it as literature, they're not that great. And he shouldn't have won the Nobel Prize. But it wasn't a question of he spent that book advance money. He was in massive debt his entire life and would just, you know, wouldn't cut back on his champagne, wouldn't cut back on his caviar and all this stuff. So he had zero control of his personal finances outside of when his wife would kick his ass and he'd cut back for a few days and (laughs) then go right back. He was a terrible student. He was very egotistical. So for most of these things, we would be punished if not written off from the time we were a child. Hmm. If we're not willing to follow the beaten path, um, And I think that that's a really big mistake. But I think with Churchill, he always had this inner confidence, which sometimes turned people off because it manifested itself as spoken and unspoken arrogance. But he knew, even when he was in the political wilderness in the run up to World War Two, because he was punished for telling the truth, that his time would come and come it did. And he was willing to put himself to the sword so my grandmother told me a story about, and the Irish are great storytellers, so maybe this is why, <laughs> when my grandfather was serving in France in World War Two, before he was invalided out with shrapnel in both hips, so basically honorably discharged, we would call it, like medical discharge, that she worked in a department store, and the ladies in the store that she worked with, what we call shop girls at the time, most of the time didn't go down to the um, to the bomb shelters when the sirens sounded during the day. And I said, ma'am, why was that? Particularly in light of another story she told me that that soon after my grandfather was invalided out and they went back to the south coast, that the, the store next to theirs was bombed out by a German bomb. So had they been doing their thing and they had been one store over, they would have all been dead. But she said, well, we heard that Churchill often didn't go down to the shelters because there was too much going on. He wanted to work or sometimes, Cause he had the curiosity of a little kid. He just wanted to go up on, on the, the, uh, the roof and watch, the, watch what was going on with the planes coming over on the nights you could see him or watch the tracer fire go up when it was dark. So she said, our, our, our way of showing solidarity with Winston, if he wasn't going down to the shelters, our noble and fearless leader who couldn't be replaced, well, we're not going to go down either. And that was their solidarity thing, which again, right now, we're talking about context, like this virus sucks and my wife has been sick for like seven weeks, as you know, so it's a real yeah. thing. But if you were in England for a certain period of time, you were being bombed by the Germans heavily every day oh, and yeah. night for month after month after month. And that never came to American shores, which I'm glad, and it's not you guys' fault, but when you've heard these stories from people who have lived through this stuff, it, it turns you either into diamonds or into dust. And a lot of people have kind of critiqued this notion of the greatest generation, but the folks that lived through two world wars and the Great Depression had to deal with some stuff that we can't even imagine when we're Mm -hmm. being told to stay at home for a few weeks. Um, And Churchill knew this. He got out. He would cry a lot at a lot of things. He would cry when he went to a neighborhood where the whole street was basically flattened if he went to a hospital that had been bombed and was in ruins and they were still pulling bodies out like this would move him. So here was a man on one one end that was willing to sacrifice his health. A lot of people don't know. He started having heart problems during World War II. So not surprisingly, even when he was at the White House that one Christmas trying to court FDR's support, he was having heart murmurs and all kinds of stuff. He had a couple of mini heart attacks, mini strokes, mm-hmm. and he just kept going. They'd keep him in bed and he would just run everything from his bed. He'd be dictating to a rolling roster of secretaries. So you had on one one part this amazing resilience and this feeling that he was destined to lead the country in its hour of need. But on the other hand, it was tempered by this humility and this compassion for the, for the common man and woman and child in the street. And I think that this bouncing act um, of his personality and also the fact that he rose above the limitations that people tried to place on him. You're stupid. You're a bad student. You can't control your money. You're always in debt. Those things are all true. Not the stupid part. He was a bad student, couldn't control his money. But he wasn't willing to let the labels that other people, teachers, his father, authority figures placed on him. Because he knew in the heart of hearts that he had something to offer the country that no one else could. And when it came to it, he almost killed himself himself. With the hours that he worked, with the sacrifice that he put on the line. So, was he at the front line taking bullets? No, although he had done that in previous sure. conflicts for his country. But he was willing to work until he basically buggered his heart, which would take him out in the end years later.
0: Well, bringing up the soldiering that he did is interesting, too. And even talking to my friend this past weekend, um, you know, and in, in, in a way, it was prep for this discussion with you, but, you know, we were just chatting, but. I didn't know how great of a soldier he even was before he was such a powerful political figure. And then uh, my friend told me an interesting story about an escape from a prison where he just, he just said, "Ah, I'm going to climb the wall and just walk through this. I mean, I mean, he's pretty amazing character and it's just, it's just, you know, there's all this, even on social media now, there's all this, you know, Instagram chatter or, you know, be your best you today and rise above this. But it, it, it's still amazing to me with all that. You still have to apply it. You can't just read it. And for a guy to just, whether it's Teddy Roosevelt or Winston Churchill, you can look at these guys and just that supreme confidence and in, in where it just gets cultivated. It, it makes me think, though, there still had to have been that one person. You know, we, you talk to social workers and things, you know. I'm, I've always been curious about what can kids do to be that resilient character, to be that Churchill and not be that, kind of worm character that kind of just fades into to nothingness or oblivion or just kind of cowers and and one social worker kind of put it in perspective she goes you know what i've noticed from kids is they need that one person to care about them and just push them along did did churchill at least have that i mean because you you got this dad uh you got this need to be great but i'm still there had to been something tangible and was it was it mom was it a a nanny somebody's just saying hey man you are cool you can live up to this
1: it was both of those. And then Churchill had really dynamic friendships. So okay. if you want a good Churchill book as like an, a, a, a gateway drug for him, read The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. Okay. And I interviewed Larson recently for a future project, which in a year or two, we'll talk more about that, that hopefully. Okay. But Eric Larson is one of the greatest living historians we have and is a national treasure. So he wrote the book The Devil in the White City Mm. is what he's best known for, um, which DiCaprio's production company bought the rights to and DiCaprio was going to star in and just various Hollywood political infightings. It never ended up happening, but they still own the rights. So hopefully one day we'll see this on the big screen. But yeah, so The Splendid and the Vile" is the best book on london during what i was talking about and my grandmother my nan in the blitz there's a lot of books written on the blitz it's by far the best um but yeah he uh he cultivated these great friendships so one of them was this guy called the prof and another one was the canadian media magnate he was like rupert murdoch but before murdoch his his name is max Beaverbrook. And they actually had a weird friendship where they would insult each other. and But he ended up making Beaverbrook like his head of wartime production, even though the guy knew nothing about factories. He knew about running newspapers and magazines and made a fortune. You know, he'd be a billionaire today like Murdoch is or someone like that. But um, yeah, so he, he had this wide social circle of people around him. And even during the war, they would have these lavish dinners and He would test out ideas at the dinner table that he would then put in the speeches. Here's the thing about Winston Churchill. Today, name one national-level or international-level politician that writes all of their own speeches, every word.
0: Well, you know, you you asked me an interesting question, and I'm like, I've always wondered this in terms of who we have in terms of political leadership. I'm like, they're all football coaches now because they all just seem to be kind of puppety people. They're not powerful like that. So I I honestly – I don't think any do. I mean –
1: So what he would say at the dinner table and how his friends and his wife reacted to it, that made it into his speeches because Churchill wrote his magazine pieces, his articles, his newspaper articles, his speeches he would give in the House of Commons, his radio addresses, which became famous during the war by dictating to these secretaries and even you know in in the the movie darkest hour where he tells the one secretary like beware i'm coming out in all my modesty or in my full nature and he would come out of the bathroom naked sometimes just not because he was a deviant or was trying to sexually harass him but just because his thought process was more on his words and he was like oh i need to come out and find this book or that letter yeah he was in a flow state and just happened to not put his robe on before. But yeah, they would perch on the, on a stool outside of his bathroom. So again, read The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson, watch the movie Darkest Hour, a good intro to this. But he, um, so yeah, he did have friends who challenged, he wanted people to challenge him, um, his friends particularly. And even when this guy, Max Beaverbrook, the newspaper and magazine guy, he he tried to quit many, many times as Minister of War Production. Basically Churchill wouldn't let him. Mm-hmm. Um, But he yeah, he had these they were tempestuous friendships and they would say all kinds of horrible things to each other. But he wanted to be challenged and his wife wouldn't let him get away with any crap. She called him on his BS and was one of the only people that did. So I think, yeah, his mother, he really loved um, a nanny. There was that. um, But it was later his wife and this wide circle of friends. And he wasn't interested in only cultivating powerful people like politicians today. Like he would have people from all walks of life at his dinner table or who he would consult. And he would learn from like a guy that taught him to lay brick. He became a chartered bricklayer so he could lay brick at his Chartwell estate. Very cool. Like how cool is that? So a lot of the time, like he would, he would learn as much from the guy teaching him to lay brick, this master bricklayer as he could from another prime minister or president. And that curiosity and that willingness to learn in domains outside of politics, also then gave, and he was a great painter, loved to paint, so he had a creative outlet. So all of these things just fed into making up for the fact that his father basically emotionally abused him and really did a number on him, and the fact that his teachers wrote him off, and so did the instructors at the Sandhurst Military Academy.
0: Well, it seems to me, too, like a, he just plugged away with his time and use it appropriately. And, and, you know, you can listen, you know, even your uh. description of, you're like, well, how can someone be so accomplished? How can he do it? And, you know, there are opportunities to be like that. Even a fellow you turned me on to recently was, um, was it Julius Ye- Yego the, the African, the African javelin thrower. And mm-hmm. it's just, it seems like just paying attention, plugging away, getting after it. It is something that you can look at these historical figures. And honestly, it's hard to get past that they've accomplished so many grand things and just realized that that probably just came from work ethic and not stopping
1: and also knowing yourself yeah so not everybody is jocko and i love jocko um and i've been it was blessed to interview for my next project with kelly starrett which hopefully we'll get a deal on that next couple of weeks we better um which you know some of the behind the scenes that we don't need to go into but not everyone gets up at 3 50 a.m and that's okay if you do and if you can crush it If you can work on your first book by getting up 20 minutes early a day and doing that, or by getting a dad workout in 20 minutes before your wife and kids get it, or two hours. Sure. Whatever, man. That's awesome. But not everyone has that chronobiology. I certainly don't. I'm not a morning person. Does that mean, and our culture, unfortunately, makes you feel like crap sometimes if you're not a morning person. But... (laughs) Steve, Stephen Kotler once told me that somebody who's writing their first couple of books, you know, Stephen Kotler the flow flow expert, that and read the rise of superman if you haven't read that for flow. Reaper. Um amazing, but he told me, okay, he's a morning person. Um you know, his wife and he have like two dog sanctuaries for rescue mutts and that kind of thing and just a lovely guy, giving me a lot of great advice, but he said every writer, bro, every author is up either before everyone else, or they're staying up later than everyone else because yes. they haven't made it yet. Sometimes they never make it in terms of books being able to support them. So for me, that meant years of being up later than everyone else. Churchill managed to put two days into one. Mm. He got up at like between like eight forty-five and nine thirty, while still trying to hold the the Western Front for democracy, right? Okay. He always had an afternoon nap, which had to be minimum one hour. He had to have complete darkness in his bedroom. And between you and me, he was naked. Um, (laughs) I don't know why that's relevant, but he was because he's weird. Um, So anyway, (laughs) he took. So check this out. He took a minimum of one one hour bath a day and sometimes two. And even when he went to France to try to say, really, you guys are just going to quit. They were like, where is Winston? Like they had this meeting of the Joint Chiefs of England and France, the military. Where the hell is he? The story was that his valet, the long-suffering Frank Sawyers, had forgotten. So basically his manservant, right? Like think like Mr. Carson in Downton Abbey, had forgotten the way to wake him up at the time he wanted. But it, because he knew his routine was so important, he insisted on still having maybe a 30-minute bath.
2: Hmm.
1: That was his start of the day. And while he was doing the bath, he was dictating to a secretary that he brought the France with him. Some people, I once had a friend say, well, that doesn't sound like the heart of a certain leader. He made all these people wait when <laughs> the West was teetering. Yeah. OK, but he knew that you can't put someone else's oxygen mask on if you're unconscious because you didn't put your own oxygen mask on first. What do they tell you in the safety talk on a plane? Please put your oxygen mask on before you help anyone else. Why is that? So his naps were restorative. His daily bath, which I have adopted ad infinitum, as anyone knows me, I'm not dictating to anyone, that would be weird, but I don't think my wife would like that very much. (laughs) But anyway. Follow
0: me in the shower here.
1: (laughs) But anyway, um, so my wife's been real sick. We're in the middle of moving house. We're trying to finish two books and start how should I say this in case she's listening, two more, parentheses, maybe more than two. I have like 10 clients. Um, I have two kids, 10 and 13. I'm trying to train every day or most days. So other people worse off? Yeah. But she had one night where she literally thought she was going to die during this COVID thing. It's it's a real thing. okay. Sure. My outlet has been a can of Great Divide, Yeti Imperial Stout.
2: There you go.
1: Oh, it's not Paleo. <laughs> Sue me. And a hot bath for a minimum of one hour. And how I time that? I'm real slow at reading, Joe. is 50 pages of a good book.
0: There you go. No, minimum. I, I think that that idea to just you know be yourself and and be a little selfish is a really hard thing to get into, folks. And especially even even talking to my wife, like you know she's scrambling to do certain things and you know, she's trying to prepare a PT presentation. She's trying to train. She's trying to be mother of the year. She's trying to get through father's day. And then she's trying to be a good wife to me. And I'm just like, Hey, it's still cool for you. If you know, you need to run with Jackie to get all that in, that's fine. Um, And, and, and I would say that a little bit of that has to do with just paying attention to yourself and figuring out what works and and what's going on and, and finding out what little resiliency tricks you need to put into it and, and, and apply them, but not let them consume you. And
1: also knowing the warning signs, man, yeah. I, I, I haven't spoken kindly to my wife and kids for, since my wife's been sick to my shame. All right. And I've got to fix some stuff on that front. I have been this close to an emotional breakdown several times. And I had a period like this a few months ago where I called Brad Stolberg, my buddy who writes for Outside Magazine, because he's been very clear. Like if you want to read a really honest piece on mental health mm. and why it's okay to not be okay sometimes, go back and read Brad Stolberg's columns from last year in Outside Magazine. And I called him and I was like, bro, you know, this is how I'm feeling. I'm taking on way too much work. I'm stressed out. You know, losing some clients sometimes. so factors outside of my control when I don't feel like I've done anything wrong and they'll pull the It's not you, it's us, our budget got cut crap. Um, It was really taking a toll. And one, Brad was very generous with his time, despite being on deadline for one of the biggest magazines in the world. But two, he was like, man, sometimes it's just okay to not be okay, but you've got to know the warning signs. So basically he was having panic attacks that was so debilitating, he couldn't even run groceries for his family, that kind Mm. of thing. Just had to basically sit in his room and be quiet. And So you've got to know the warning signs. And sometimes it takes your wife saying, Buck up or ship out. Yeah. And sometimes it takes knowing that someone else told me that when their, their office becomes real messy that they've learned that might seem like a tiny thing or some Marie Kondo bullshit about simplifying your space, but it's actually an indicator that they're, they're doing too much and that their mental health is not where it needs to be. And then that spirals into a second level signal or third level signal. Um, if you're not sleeping well, Okay, you cut out afternoon caffeine. You cut your alcohol down to zero or to one beer or one whiskey a night. You do all the tips and check. T- if you're not sleeping well, it could be because you're stuck in a sympathetic stress state. And you you can do some things like breath work, like check out Patrick McKeon's stuff on breath work, Casper um, and whoever, uh, Brian McKenzie. But you cannot out supplement burning out a lifestyle that is burning out your adrenals. You can't out train it. It's not a question of work harder, be tougher. Dan Pfaff, the great, um, I learned this through my co-author Fergus Conley. There's a quote in the book, 59 lessons that Fergus did, um, where Dan Pfaff says something like, it's not the person who does the most work. Like this is a fundamental mistake that I think he says like smart work correctly dosed is basically what champions learn to do particularly as they get become an older athlete so we've got to stop doing this you have to get up at 350 Love it. and leave a puddle of sweat on the floor if you can great and i'm not bashing jocko because he's a legend and he is an early bird and he's crushing it as a father a husband a motivator an author a speaker a teacher everything he does amazing guy not everyone's built like that. So if you know you're, you're a night owl, use some of that time smartly dosed to do some of the stuff that you cannot do during normal work hours, but without crushing yourself. And no, start to learn what your warning signs are and cultivate practices. Look to Kelly Starrett, 10 minutes of mobility a day, every day. Look to Dr. Jim Aframow, my co-author who wrote The Champion's Mind. Five minutes of mental skills training a day, every day. Bookend each day with five minutes of nasal breathing. Mm. No protocols. Breathe through your nose calmly and focus on that. Five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. And if you're like me and you're stressed and tense and angry all the time, 10 minutes at night. Okay. Um, And just so know, know your chronobiology, right? Like read like The Power of When or whatever. Read some Michael Bruce. So know when you're most, when you're at your most dangerous. And this will inform Joe how you train. If you are a night owl and you're trying to crush 5am workouts, you're screwing yourself at a cellular level and vice versa. Know and develop some minimum effective dose self-care practices and start with mindset and start with mobility and maybe taking a daily walk. Um, And then... Know the warning signs, or ask your spouse or your friends. Outside of me just being pissed off, <laughs> what? Seriously, no, no, right. what? When I have too, when I have too much volume on the home front and the work front, and the everything front, how do I behave? You talk to me like an asshole, okay? You're inconsiderate. You're controlling. Those are warning signs. What does your office space look like? What is your? What are your workouts look like? warning signs and and knowing then, okay, I've got to dial back the volume on something and it's probably work. Um, Or maybe it's social media. You're wasting two hours a day. You don't think you are. Install rescue time on your phone or freedom. That'll, oh, I don't have time to write. I've been wanting to write this book for 10 years, man. I don't have the time. Really? How much time are you spending on Facebook or Instagram, bro? Yeah. Really? Because the average person... If they're using two or more platforms, Kenny Kane and I um, have done a lot of research on this, an hour and 53 minutes a day if you're on two social media platforms and you use them daily. Don't tell me you don't have time for self-care, to take a bath, to take a walk with your wife and kids, to go for a run, to do some breath work, to do some mindset training. Yeah, you do, to read a book. Yeah, you do. You're just choosing to not prioritize it and to lie to yourself. And that's not a knock, just... Start taking honest stock of your life and recognize that you cannot be Superman twenty four seven because that works until something breaks mentally, spiritually, physically.
0: Well, I was gonna. That's the thing that even in the hunting space that's drawn me to it is this idea that you know one of the I'll I'll get into it, but one of the warning signs that I've noticed is uh, ease to sleep is a big one for me. If I can roll into bed, not think about it, and go to sleep, everything's tracking behind that really well. But when I start thinking, when I go to bed and it's I got this client's program to run, that I'm worried about this. Um, what am I doing for Jeremy on the podcast? Are my lesson plans in order? Like, if I have that frantic moment where I'm going through that checklist, it, it's it, it's just not going to work. And then from there, that's the spiral. Then the wife's starting to hey Joe. Um, you're not being very nice to me. And then i notice I'm blown up to the kids and then training's not coming. And then I'm eating ice cream before I go to bed. Like, But I've noticed that if I walk that back room, as I walk that back, it all goes to what am I doing to make sure I can get to bed at night? And for me, that's a lot about managing screens and, and paying attention to myself in that sense where a lot of the things that I've noticed that I'll think are escapes are not doing what I want them to do, and that might be that hour of TV at night. And I really have to be disciplined in the sense that rather than the hour of TV at night, it's that hour to read, you know, Aldo Leopold at night, or Mark Kenyon, or dive into one of your books, or, or something, whatever you something want, episodic. or even yeah. something.
1: Even something if you like to read romantic fiction and don't <laughs> want to admit it. If you <laughs> like right. the Twilight books, <laughs> yep. doesn't matter what it is. But yep. we do know that even a Kindle set on the lowest light setting or an iPad disrupts your sleep onset exactly what you talked about yeah. reduces rem sleep and reduces overall sleep quality so don't lie to yourself and be like well i mean if you travel a lot well sure it's great to have a thousand books on your Kindle. i get that man but it, it read, read um just read a freaking paper book and again this is not about Hacking your life. This is not about fitting in one more thing or the ten things you need to do. You know that clickbait bullshit. It's not about that. But it's just about, and it's a constant battle, right? It's a, it's between essentialism, as Greg McKeown calls it in his book, not coincidentally called essentialism and (laughs) non-essentialism. Um, it's about if you're a person of faith and you say you prioritize that, and yet you never let a friend challenge you at, by saying something like, what's your biggest sp- spiritual challenge today or this week? Or if you're never reading your Bible. Uh, and it's not about listening to 20 sermons a week from this church, that church. I'm not living it right now. I'm speaking unkindly to my wife and kids. I'm irrational. I'm angry because my, and I justify it. My load is too great. Like I said, my wife's sick. We're trying to move house, etc. But if I care about my wife, And I say, I'm prioritizing her. Well, my time doesn't reflect that. The way I speak to her doesn't reflect that. And I'm not really doing anything on the spiritual side to address it because, frankly, I just don't want to. Because at the end of the day, I just want to drink a beer and have my bath and everyone just leave me the hell alone. That's just complete candor of where I'm at today. And as a result, there's some fallout on the marriage front from that. There's a fallout on neglecting friendships from that that now I'm going to have to go and address because I've been an asshole. So... (laughs) It's all very well to just look at your circumstances and blame this factor or that. But it comes back to Jocko in a good way. It's not just prioritize and execute, but you have to own it. If your kids are acting out, maybe you're modeling, you're angry, you're irritable, you're short-tempered. They're just a a reflection of you. Oh, yeah.
0: Kids are are great for that. I mean, I can remember even being young. uh, My son, Mason... Uh, he might have been two years old at the time, and I can remember driving in the car, being stuck in like Hawaii traffic, and I'm watching my young son, and all of a sudden, I was watching him in his back seat just kind of tense up. And I was like, where's that coming from? And then I'm realizing that what am I doing right there in traffic, right? So it's just, it even goes back to the Churchill comment that he surrounded himself with folks who also challenged him it's just having that support structure and and mm-hmm. paying attention to it enough to realize what the heck's going on with it and, and how that support structure can then whether it's your wife yeah um, influence or clue you in to what's going on
1: and sometimes you can't do this by yourself like here's what i'm gonna do joe this week to fix this and again people are like what is what are <laughs> you making joe your Freaking psychotherapist, dude! What are you doing, this poor guy? You didn't bet for this, did you, Joe? When we talked last, um, but deal with it; it's happening. <laughs> so the pastor, the pastor that married us, Dan Vanderpool. Like when you have a lobby at your church named after you, and he doesn't have a book or anything else, but it's just a pastor in suburban Kansas City. We used to meet. We
2: Ooh.
1: In, four questions, and, and I can't remember all of them um, due to the current. Some self-inflicted PTSD and, you know, just being old. I turned 39 this week, but he would. One of them was, have you spoken to your wife and kids? Mainly, would you say kindly or unkindly this week? Like, man, I don't want the Book of James thrown in my face. And again, this is not I'm not saying this is like, oh, look at me. I'm a person of faith. So that makes me better because I'm a Christian. It's me saying a lot of times I don't live out what I claim to believe, so this guy holds me accountable. Sure. Well, we haven't d- lived there for six years, Joe, and I miss that. So I'm going to call Pastor Dan later and be like, "Hey, remember, do you still have that piece of? He, he has the piece of paper with the four questions. So if someone's looking for a clickbaity title for this podcast, it is <laughs> the four account, the four accountability yeah. questions. Sure. Um, you know, it's like, are you watching your language around your kids? Which, again, oh, what kind of bad dad are you if you swear around your kids? Well, when I'm stressed, I swear more. Just reality. And then there's like two other questions. And they may seem like small questions, but the answers to them are actually real big and tell you an awful lot. And then we would unpack that for an hour on a Friday afternoon at Starbucks.
2: Very cool.
1: Tears would be shared. Um, boundaries would be pushed. Accountability. Accountability would be issued. Even if you picked one question that your spouse told you this is a problem right now between us. If you asked a close buddy, and again it has nothing to do with the faith thing, ask a buddy to ask you a question or two. What's your biggest challenge this week, man? Or how just how how have you been doing with your marriage this week, bro? How how's what's the biggest parenting issue you're having right now? And then just having a beer? Or drinking some scotch or whatever, and unpacking that at the pub on a Friday or Saturday night. And again, a lot of people say, oh, "I don't have time for that, man." Make time. Do it virtually, like this.
2: No.
1: Make I... time. Have someone keep you accountable because we need someone. We need, as men, we need men alongside us. As women listening, you need women in your life who are not your mom. Well, you're, if... You're, if you have a strong father, your father cannot be. Your one and only friend as well. You needed friends who will come alongside you, call you on your bullshit, and help you shoulder your burden. Well, and if you don't have that in your life, because you've squeezed it out, because having 2,000 pseudo friends on Facebook has excluded actually making time for real friends. Say if you were on socials for an hour, okay, a day. Cut that to 30 minutes. And the other 30 minutes, call your dad, call your brother talk to a friend, spend that, you know, spend that time even one doing that one day a week. If you cut that in half or the average, almost two hours, you cut it in half three days a week, reinvest that time in cultivating this candid conversations where people call you on your crap. You will go a long way to helping your mental health, your spiritual health, your physical health, because if you don't have that outlet, eventually if you it's going to your stress is going to build up to the point where. I can't understand it, Joe. I've been doing this five-by-five squat program or deadlift program, and not only am I not putting on muscle, but I'm losing weight. Your body's going to be in a state of catabolism, man, at a certain point of stress. And if you don't survive, if you don't sort that out, you will have a heart attack. You will get cancer. Something catastrophic will happen to you, and it may be a small thing for us. You'll pull a hammy. It may be, you know, something small, but over time and as you get older, like guys in their late 30s like us, you know, 40s, 50s, the wheels start to fall off a bit and it could be your marriage falls apart. You don't want to wait for that, man. So take it from someone who's pushed these relationships to the brink and pulled back many times. You need accountability from someone in your life and you need to offer that to other people freely.
0: Well, I think that's the importance of – I love that you brought up that idea that, you know – The idea was to talk training and optimization and this and that, but this idea that men need men, I think is super important. And whether it's that locker room chatter that, you know, I I can think back to what I miss about division three football or high school football and more than winning a game and dominating other people. It was, I miss talking shit in the locker room. And honestly, it, it, that's to me why elk camp is no surprise why I enjoy it so much. And whether I harvest an animal or whether I climb 13 miles up, you know, ten thousand feet in a day, whatever. Like what I like most about elk camp is afterwards, you're around a group of guys who can challenge you that way, and you can have real conversation. And it, it speaks to me about it. You know, there's a there's some cool places like that. Um, Dan Doty d- discusses this with every man, um, but it, it speaks that there's this need for. You know, we, I don't know if we need men's groups or we all need a pastor, but I, we definitely need that guy who can check us. You know what I mean? Um, and we
1: need to offer it to other people yeah. because it, it's got to be a two-way street. And there's a great Bible verse, I'm going to butcher it, about um, like the, the trials we have. And they're not for us. Like They're for other people. They're basically like the lessons that we learn. Um, I don't even know what book it's in. That's a very bad... Uh, student of a sacred text, but, and again, people who are like, well, I'm not a Christian, or I'm an atheist, You're, you believe in fairy tales, okay, well, I'm just telling you that when you go through tough times, you can learn some lessons that a younger guy that hasn't come through this, or even a guy your own age or older than you hasn't gone through it, could do with some help with, man, if you have a special needs child, if you, you know, your wife's sick, or you, you go through something, or you lose your job and then you hear about a buddy who loses their job. And instead of calling him, you're just on Facebook trying to big up your latest vacation or staycation in this case because you've got that new MacBook monitor.
2: Yeah.
1: Call your damn friend and not just commiserate like, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your job. But here's what I did, bro. And actually, it ended up, I was at the, Chris Burkhardt, the photographer told me recently, like I was at the the station with my bag packed and ready to go down this freelance road of being a photographer and yet i had all this pressure telling me to get a safe job and go to a good school and finish my degree and and eventually you know a friend of yours may be at this fork in the road where they know they should be a freelance writer photographer doing something creative that they're really good at and it takes them getting fired to figure that out and they have mm. a family and they're scared about their income man and that's a real thing and that happened to me and then it's not until that boss that you hate at the time, but later you're like, thanks, man, I, 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 I good. It's what Jocko says again, a Jocko good. lesson. Good, yeah. <laughs> right? Go watch the, go Google or look on YouTube, Jocko Willing. Good. But until that that friend has that perspective, they go drink real hard for six months, and their marriage falls apart because of it. Because they got fired, and they're upset with the world. They're angry with their boss. They feel like their spouse is bugging them to get another job, and they feel like they can't. And they hate that line of work anyway. They don't know what to do. Well, I went through it, so I'm going to pick up the phone, man, and take that and extrapolate it to your own well, – what's something hard that you've been through that you know a friend or family member is struggling with? Hmm. Today is the day to pick up the phone, Joe.
0: Well, you know, and, and I would agree with you, and it speaks to even a point that you made in our earlier conversation before we had this is maybe you know the big draw to – mental resiliency that we're you know the, the idea was physical resiliency but we we're definitely down this mental resiliency path so we'll stick on it but it also seems to me like if you have that check if you're willing to call somebody if you're willing to have somebody call you out that's the path to build empathy with people not to talk about it on social media or to post or do you know, a ted talk yeah or do a ted but like the thought is hey actually get out there and practice it because you spoke to earlier statistics that showed that our society right now is losing all four. You know, people talk about empathy, but they don't really exhibit it.
1: College students, there's a long term study over the last twenty years. Empathy among college students has gone down forty percent.
2: Hmm.
1: Why is that?
0: I would say because we're not doing this even in a even in a Skype setting. You're having a real conversation, right? But what? It's, it's not it's not a chatter back and forth and actually experiencing emotions with people
1: we love long-form podcasts not because the guests are a-list performers or a big name much as i want to hear from jimmy chin about film directing and i want my son who wants to go to film film school to to listen to that and to take jimmy's masterclass. right um we don't want to hear Steve Kerr riff about coaching whoever Greg Popovich, Greg Popovich would never do that kind of podcast we know that um would even Kawhi Leonard for that matter but in, in a joking aside we do not have these conversations in our lives and as men particularly and I said it applies to your wife too like her mom can't be everything to her like yeah. her best friend oh, my mom's my best friend awesome how many other friends do you have and how many times a week do you call them or go out for happy hour or virtual happy hour right now, whatever. Same for our wives, man. Like we, I don't know. We we miss these conversations because they're inefficient. We've adopted a Henry Ford efficiency line model, not realizing that we are not an, our life is not an assembly line. Yeah. And we are not a robot that puts, rivets on a car or puts wheels on a car we are human beings we have a fundamental need to be an authentic community and to look each other in the eye and have long-form conversations and right now Joe Rogan is a substitute for that and Tim Ferriss is a substitute for that and your podcast is a substitute for that those are awesome and I love all of those guys Um, I love what you're doing but it can't be a substitute it needs to be a compliment
0: yeah, no, because it, it's, okay, Mark Kenyon's book that I referenced before. He loves public lands, and he loves the idea of Yellowstone. But the the fact is that because Yellowstone is talked about so much on National Geographic, because maybe it's written about so much, people consume that, and they think that they're actually going to get the benefit that Yellowstone can really give you, where what you really need to do is get in your car and go to Yellowstone. So. You know, there's a great
1: story about Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, visiting John Muir, Yeah, your national parks dude, um, without which, arguably, there wouldn't be any national parks. And John Muir kind of said something like, and, and the quote was more pithy than this, that for a guy that really loves nature, like his essay, you know, on nature, and read like Emerson's collected essays, or even throw, um, and they are amazing... They're, you know, just peons to nature. But um, he was like, for a guy that loves nature, why was he only here four hours in Yosemite? And then he just turned around and went back to the East Coast. He was like, to get, you know, basically the subject was he needed four days. He needed four weeks. Sure. And they didn't have phones. They weren't trying to find this waterfall or like, hey, this is like hashtag Alex Honnold. This yeah, is yeah. where Honold climbs. Hashtag free solo. And and there's a reason that Tommy Caldwell deliberately threw his phone off the wall on the Dawn Wall. Like, if you haven't watched the documentary, The Dawn Wall, Kevin Jorgeson and Tommy Caldwell, he didn't drop his phone. Like, the story he even told Jorgeson, like, yeah, I think I left my uh, pocket open and it just fell out. No, man, he wanted to focus on the experience, the combination of eight years figuring out the route and this thing, grueling, horrible thing that he's doing with his friend on the wall. He wanted to be fully immersed. And as much as he loves John Branch calling him from the New York Times, and John Branch is one of our greatest living sports writers, he just wanted John to not ask him any more questions for a while. Sure. He wanted to focus, man. He wanted to be you think Led Hamilton is checking Instagram when he's surfing seventy foot waves at Jaws?
0: No, and it speaks to even you brought up Rise of Superman and um, this idea of flow state, and that's a it's a great book that was passed along to me by of all people, um a beef farmer in South Carolina, but it's the, incredible. The, the book is what the book is. It, it, it just highlights the need to be passionate about something to actually put real time into it and focus on it for a moment instead of just doing things, um, for an Instagram post or, or letting things break. And, and I know that memory can be really flawed. Like you'll never be able mm-hmm. to remember everything that a picture can tell you. But I think the, the good thing about actually experiencing a focus on it is then, it might not be exactly as it happened when you reaccount it. But when you go back and try to reaccount it, uh, it, it brings back something alive in you that makes it more yours than it would ever have been based off what you can recall from a picture taken from it. And, and I don't know, I don't know if I'm even articulating that well. But that that whole, that whole just being human with that moment, I think, is super important. And, you
1: know, some of the most profound experiences I've had as a journalist um, like I watched Ben Harper from the side of a stage when Wakarusa Festival used to be in Lawrence, Kansas, before they moved it, because I I was there to interview him, to continue a phone interview. And um, he was like, man, I told the security guys, you're cool. Just sit sit on the edge of the stage if you want and watch the (laughs) set. So to, to watch that, and it was kind of behind it, like diagonally to the side. And then to hang with him in his trailer afterwards, and we did that at two different live shows. People are like, "Bro, can you can you email me the pictures from that, or or you know give me a Dropbox link?" There aren't any damn pictures, man. But it, it, it happened. <laughs> yes. It happened. If you think I'm lying, go look up the cover story I did on Ben. Sure. But I don't. I shouldn't need to prove it to you. Do I wish I had some pictures? Yeah, I probably do. Yep. Um, and we know that there are essays. There was a great piece in Outside, even though I disagree with her conclusion recently. I forget the girl's name, the journalist that wrote it. Really, really thoughtful piece. But she said people probably thought this when they started seeing pocket cameras before, you know, when it wasn't just this giant rig anymore and people at the Grand Canyon, they'd be shake their head and be like, oh, this is disgraceful. You just need to experience nature in its fullest. And that the progression of that is every idiot with their iPhone 11 that they spent $1,600 on when they were kids starving in the world whatever um so yeah and every generation shakes its head and thinks oh I can't believe the kids are listening to this EDM these days and I do that with my kids um but there is something lost if you were just there for Instagram like there was another great piece I think in, in outside again like Ski for you, not for Instagram. Sure. And we use that. You may remember that from Unplugged. We use that as one of our subheads. I probably should have asked the writer, but who cares? I'm furthering their ideas and I did credit them. Or the Strava fail, like hashtag Strava fail, implying that if Strava malfunctioned, that the workout you did did not count.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Is farcical. Do you think on a cellular level that your body doesn't know that you just cycled those 20 miles at X pace or your 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 freaking Fitbit runs out of battery or your Garmin or whatever steers you wrong. Do you think that your body at a cellular level thinks that you did nothing that day because it was a hashtag Strava fail, your Garmin didn't work, your Fitbit, you forgot the charge? No, man. And, and these things are great. Like if, if we're looking at it as a 10,000 steps, like Andy Galpin compares it to vitamin RDAs, right? If you don't get the RDA of vitamin C, you will get scurvy, right? Like if you don't have enough vitamin D, you will get rickets or some horrendous disease that no one in this century has had um, in the Western world. So the 10,000 steps, the idea is just it's a it's an RDA, but instead of for vitamins, it's for movement because we are largely sedentary, yada yada yada. But that shouldn't be the minimum. And, and effectively, the first Fitbit was like a pedometer, but a bit fancier. Mm-hmm. If this, if the technology gets you up and gets you moving, and it, you cultivate a practice with it as a tool, great. It's a great tool. But as Tim Ferriss said in Unplugged, told us on the phone, it's a terrible taskmaster. If that becomes the only thing, man, then it is the technology is your experience. We need to pair and it with the something. The hunting, the hunting trip you're talking about is the antithesis for this you know what your why is it's deep community and you don't even have to go out in the wilderness for you know just go on a 20 minute walk in the evening with your wife and kids and no one brings a device because otherwise look up device-free dinners will ferrell the common sense media campaign Mm. like i miss daddy i miss him more and he's right there at the table and he says something like hey shut up look, this cat this cat filter or this filter makes me look like a cat. And that's his idea of checking back in. So Common Sense Media has all the stats on social usage. Um, we need to get out of our own way. And it's not about becoming a Luddite. And it's not saying technology is bad. But ultimately, as humans, like we crave certain things. We, we need to be awed by nature. We need to be in community. We need to move. We need to believe in something greater than ourselves. And there are certain things in our society, mobile technology and extractive social media platforms being one of them, that if you do not set up guardrails, whether it's a time limit on Freedom or um, one of the other apps, right, Rescue Time, if we don't set up as guardrails, technology that is designed to be excessive Cannot be managed moderately unless you are Jocko and you have a will of iron. I doubt that social media is detracting too much from this guy. He just gets out, he posts, and he gets the hell off. I may get back on Instagram at some point. Um, but I know why I like to be on there, because I like the little dopamine hit, the reinforcement, the likes. Um, well, there's so real addiction trying, in it. But there is addiction in it. And Adam Alter in his book irresistible says that the average American touches or looks at their or the sorry the average person in the Western world touches or looks at their phone every six and a half minutes mm. there is only one word and you just said it for that it is addiction sure. and it robs us of something it's flow it's attention it's diverting ourselves to what's good so I use an app called taper call which if you do interviews and you're doing phone calls taper call it's 10 bucks a year. And you record it and then you can upload it to Evernote and then download it from there and get it transcribed if you have the money or just store it in Dropbox. It's genius. That's helpful. This is helpful. I'll tell you what wouldn't be helpful. Yeah, Joe, I know what you mean. Like Seinfeld did a great bit and I think it was like on Fallon or Kimmel years ago where he said like back in my day if you were reading a newspaper while your spouse or your buddy's talking to you and you're like "Uh uh-huh yeah uh uh-huh that would be (laughs) that would be considered rude but this oh I gotta have it man everyone's on there like 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 it's rude man turn it off throw it in the river there's a time and a place for it is what I'm saying but Fundamentally as humans, we need flow, we need nature, we need connection to some kind of higher power or belief in something greater, like Churchill did.
2: Well
0: which was you know,
1: like Roosevelt did. We need
0: that. I would say we need and we also, you know, to kind of sum it up, you know, so you can take care of your wife, but and, and even to bring it back to where we started again. I really think it's funny. The the draw to this conversation must be really powerful because we went into it saying we weren't gonna go here, but we did. But, and when we got there through Churchill and, 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 um, and Roosevelt. But we also need each other more than anything, even now, in a real way, not just liking and clicking each other. And it makes me just wonder, again, about Churchill, and even again about the criticism that he got from his father through letters. I would sit here and say that he probably, as much as those letters were hard to him, he must have cherished him to some degree, because his father, being so busy, actually had to sit down and do that. Those letters probably put a lot of time into it. And it makes me wonder if intuitively or Churchill might have thought, man, my dad's being hard on me. But for him to actually sit down and do this and send me this letter, it had to mean it had to have meant something to him.
1: Yeah. And the letter writing's interesting because Harry Truman, when he was in the White House, tried to answer each and every person that he can in, in, in uh, Independence, Missouri. Hmm. I feel privileged to have followed in the footsteps of great historians like David McCullough and others who have written about Truman and written much better books than I have. My friend Matt Algio, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, is a brilliant book. These amazing historians um, who are a lot smarter than I am, better writers. But there is a entire section, like linear feet, that runs probably the length of your house, if you put it wall-to-wall of every letter that Harry Truman wrote to ordinary folks, ordinary Americans in the mm-hmm. White House. Harry Truman never took a dime, Matt Algo in that book, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure. Um, it's a story of Bess Truman and Harry Truman driving to Eisenhower's inauguration, but it brings in some bigger themes. So like personal attention, so Chris Brocard told me recently, The Adventure of Dogfro Dog Throw is amazing and really made me rethink what, what I think of social media. In a way, and I'm, now I'm kind of rocked back the other way because Kenny Kane and I just did a Barbell Shrugged episode where we were bashing social media. Um, Chris Burcard answers every person who sends him a direct message on Instagram. Mm. Dude has 3 million followers, bro. Wow. That is his equivalent of Harry Truman. So if you can use that for good... I know a friend whose son reached out to Chris card and he spent who knows how much time mentoring this kid, even though he's mentoring kids all over the world on how to be better photographers and how to pursue their dream. Chase Jarvis at Creative Live is another great person who's mentoring at scale. So again, it's not about the technology. It's about how you use it. And if sure. Chris Bricard writing back to young photographers who he thinks he can help is the equivalent of Harry Truman writing back to Americans who uh, took time out of their day to write from the White House. Man, how awesome is that? You and I would never have connected, or it would have taken us longer. We wrote back and forth on Instagram. Yeah. So it's not—it's not about the tool. It's just about where does it fit in your life. And if you're honest, and if you use a tool like the ones we mentioned earlier, or pick any app, or even built into Instagram, it tells you an average daily amount. Okay. We'll look for minimalism. I'm a coach, man. My business is all online now. My freaking The government won't let me reopen my gym. Bro, do what you need to do to support your business and your family like this. Mm-hmm. You reach out to me. I see a message. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I remember this guy. I like this guy's <laughs> post. We go back and forth. That is minimalism, and it's functional. And hopefully, if one person took something here and wasn't like this English guy sure talks a lot, because um, <laughs> he's real caffeinated and real tired and stressed. But if we move the, the needle for one person, one degree, and the same with the books, you know how many books I've written that have made money, bro?
0: As many as even I
1: with some of the <laughs> Even with some of the authors you mentioned and what yeah. the royalty checks are on those, and yet there's some insta-famous idiot from reality TV that goes out and sells a million copies. But that aside, like this profession is a labor of love. And what I love is a Kelly Starrett buggered his shoulder when he was on the whitewater national slalom canoe team here in Colorado down Durango and was told by his coach that's just what happens when we're paddling this much go get it fixed
2: Hmm.
1: he was like what do you mean that's just what happens so he set out to fix himself and then his why became I fixed myself so now I'm going to go to PT school so I can fix other people maybe your wife is somewhat similar and Andy Galpin his five-minute physiology videos on YouTube. Andy has put, basically, you don't have to go to Cal State Fullerton and take Andy's courses, even though that would be cool. It's all on YouTube, man. Jocko, Chase Jarvis, Chris Card, Jimmy Chin's Masterclass. <laughs> you think Jimmy's making enough money? Like, if you even buy a, a, an unlimited Masterclass pass, how much he's getting from you, you're basically buying the guy a small cup of coffee. And you were learning from an Oscar-winning filmmaker and one of the best photographers in the world. All of these guys and girls, Sue Falzone, um, pick a coach, pick pick someone, um, authors, podcasters like yourself, man, you're not doing this because you're making 100 grand an episode. You're serving your community. So my point being that like, even people listening, you have something inside of you that others can benefit from. And whether it's your friend that you allow him or her to ask some tough questions and you do the same for them, that's something to offer. If you have a book inside you, if you wanna start a podcast, if you wanna start a blog, if you wanna start taking photos and and your motivation is bigger than yourself, today is the day to start, devote five or 10 minutes a day, pick some pockets of time and go out and do something that will serve wider community because everyone listening has that thing man and if you haven't figured it out have your friends and family help you figure it out and then just go do it because this your podcast is your way to mentor at scale yeah. everyone can offer that man so they don't have to be a writer like me a photographer like jimmy or chris or whatever uh, pt like kelly starrett but if your why and it's a horrible thing to say that it's so cliche i hate it but if your why is rooted in service and and how can i do the most good how can i help someone out then, man, you're going to do great things for somebody, even if you never hear from that person, you never know it. So go do great things because you have the capacity to be a glowworm, just as important and influential as Winston Churchill was.
0: You do. You do. And you can I think you can do that with your own kids. You can do it with your neighbors, you know, and you don't have to do it with a million followers on Instagram. So. You know, It's so funny. We kept saying we weren't going to go down that route, but I really love the conversation of mental resiliency and at a time more than ever where folks are kind of rooted and stuck inside and um, folks are trying to maybe do way too much. Hopefully we can get folks through this conversation to start to zero in on themselves so they can really impact other people and, and potentially use social media or whatever media place uh, appropriately so they can be more powerful and, and not be kind of a, a, uh, a slave to the likes, right? So, but, uh, but uh, I know you have to be a slave to the, the wifey. I hope she recovers there, Phil, and I hope uh, I hope you I hope you uh, hope you chime in and, and, and kind of uh, tighten up what's keeping you, um, yeah, what's keeping you from being as active as you need to be because I know that that's super stressful and your work is is super impactful. I know um, for me in particular, I said to see before, uh, just know that it's reaching a young audience, and I think I don't know who it's going to be, but one of these kids that I'm getting after is going to be someone who's going to get after the masses, get after the masses, and kind of uh, change this world. So I believe that. I believe that's what I'm supposed to do as a teacher. So and part of the reason I know that is I'm paying attention through books like um, that you've written, like Unplugged. They've been really influential on me. So that's uh, kind of tying this up because we're reaching out our hour, man. Um, this was really a thrill for me, and I know that we have to get you back on to talk about the physical resiliency we want to build. But uh, I think this was a super worthwhile conversation and. Um, I know that because it happened when we tried to not let it happen. <laughs> so uh, it was awesome, man.
1: No, oh, Thank you so much for the time and for letting me just uh, riff on some stuff that only today is coming down. And just again, just <laughs> yeah. some stuff uh, me not talking from a, a place of completeness and uh, success, but from a place of incompleteness and, and brokenness. And um, hopefully as I work through it, just humility and desire to put some of this more into practice. Because unfortunately, sometimes... You're like the old Italian cobbler who is making beautiful shoes for people and spending three, four months on on each pair of shoes Mm. Um, and is walking around with holes in his own shoes, man. So that's the danger in all this is that you spend your time writing in, in human performance or coaching in that space and you're not putting on your own mask, but you're trying to put on so many other people. So just take time to put on your own mask. Take a walk. Go hunt, go fish, um, you know, do kick a ball around with your kids in your backyard. Hopefully the Gestapo isn't going to come tell you that's a covid violation and fine you a thousand dollars per kid or something. But in all seriousness, just do something for you today and don't feel bad about it. And then maybe that will lead you to to a, a physical practice, a spiritual practice that's beneficial for you. Um, keep you've got to keep filling your own well, Joe. So I haven't done a very good job. In fact, I've done a wretched job the last couple mm-hmm. of months. And I could explain it away by sheer load or volume or whatever. But ultimately, um, I need to start taking better ownership and get my own house in order because then I'll be at a better point to write books that hopefully help other people without being a hypocrite myself.
0: Well, I think the biggest piece of advice to even get that well-filled for folks that that I'm going to probably take away from this podcast is to probably, and I think guys listening to this probably will all benefit from it too, is to call your best friend or your perceived best friend or your your perceived best male mate and ask them uh, how I'm doing. How do you think I'm doing? And I bet you that would be a worthwhile conversation between the two of you, whether you come to the realization that neither one of you are paying attention to each other or that maybe this person will will help you through it. I think that's the way to go because I I really do think men need men and people need people on this. So it was awesome, man. I I think that's where I'm going to take it. And then uh, um, for folks who do want to take a next step and and reach out to you and grab your books, I mean, where's the best spot that you might tell people at the end of this to go find out more about Phil White?
1: I mean, ironically, if you want to contact me, just hit me, send me a direct message on Instagram. It's just yeah, at right. white books. And it is ironic because I've been on for a while. I've been off for a while. I've been on for a while. And like I said, if you listen to the Barbell Shrug podcast, Kenny and I just did, which isn't out yet, um, you'd be like, well, that's hypocrisy. No, it isn't. I'm just trying to figure it out. But yeah, just reach out to me that way. And then, um, yeah, there's, there's a uh, website called clippings.me. Which is an online portfolio site for creatives, and and then if you just search Phil White books on that, you can find some of my latest articles for uh, for Hana, for Momentus. I mean, for Train Heroic, I'm lucky enough to partner with guys like Nick Gill from the All Blacks or Tim D Francesco's with the Lakers and Ghostrite for them. Um, which again is just my way of trying to serve. They they're an expert with stuff that can help people. Here's people that need to be helped. There's me in the middle. Um, so yeah, you can check out some of my latest articles on there, but yeah, we'd love to have a conversation with anyone about whatever really, I suppose.
0: Cool gang. We'll check out Phil. He's the man, Phil. This was uh, great fun for me. I love your work. I'm going to follow you back follow back up with this. Hopefully, um, the conversation was stimulating enough to convince you to come back and do it again. Cause, um, I'm yeah, persistent it. In, that, in that regard. I'm going to email you again, you know, so um, now that I have I love it, it. And you, 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 yeah. you messed up by giving me your phone number. So go take care of your wife <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks a me. bunch. And everybody, Train, Hunt, Live, your best life possible, folks. Thank you.